Hello and welcome to the Blessed Life Podcast, where we explore together how to walk into the promises of Jesus. I'm Eric, the Discipleship Pastor at New Life Lutheran Church. Thanks for listening today. If you've been a longtime listener of this podcast or the podcast that was before the New Life Lutheran Podcast, you know that we are in the middle of a transition here. We are transitioning to a new format, so there have been some changes with the podcast and how we are releasing these episodes. The new format is going to be this. Twice monthly, there will be released discipleship teachings. These will be short, concise teachings about discipleship, what it is, and exploring different facets of it. At the end of each podcast episode, there will be reflection questions associated with that podcast. If you are listening on Spotify or iTunes, the questions will be time-stamped in the description. These questions are meant to be used for your own personal reflection, or if you want to use this podcast for your curriculum for a life group, you can use those questions for your life group. The best way to get access to this podcast and to keep up with all the episodes that are released is by downloading the New Life Lutheran app. You can find that at the App Store or the Google Play Store. Go ahead and download that. You can listen to the podcast. You can close out the app. You can close out your screen, put it in your pocket, listen to it while you're working out or while you are doing chores, and you can get the Word of God right into your ears that way. Also, intermittently, there will be released extra episodes that will be released on the off weeks that will include interviews with other people of faith, faith leaders, and people in the community. So be on the lookout for those special episodes that will not have reflection questions, but are simply to dive deeper into the subject that we are covering at that time. I wanted to begin this new format with a simple exploration of what is discipleship. Discipleship, simply put, is learning. A disciple is a student of someone. Back in the time of Jesus and the apostles, they did not have classrooms and lecture halls the way that we do now. So when they would think about students and learning, they did not think about it the way that we do. They did not think about schools and classrooms and universities and all that stuff. When someone wanted to learn something, they would go with somebody who did that thing well, who was an expert at that thing, and they would learn how to do that thing or they would learn about that thing from the expert in the field practicing it. So if you were a disciple, a student of a rabbi, you would follow the rabbi wherever they went. You would hear them teach. You would watch them preach. You would watch them minister to people. You would watch them minister to people out in the community. And then you would begin to emulate their practices. Same thing if you were learning a trade. If you were learning to be a mason or a carpenter or a builder, you would go with a carpenter or builder or mason, and you would learn from them how to do that thing out in the field by practicing it and by hearing them and watching them do it. So simply put, discipleship is learning in this way, learning while doing, learning in the field. And we are called to be disciples of Jesus Christ. And so we follow him where he goes. He takes us along with him. We watch him, we listen to him, and we become like him. So discipleship is what happens to us when we follow Jesus. 
So it is not so much that churches disciple people as much as churches are being discipled together as everyone follows Jesus. Jesus is the disciple maker. We walk hand in hand, arm in arm, as we are being discipled by Jesus. So my favorite definition of discipleship, the one that I have developed over the last several years is this. Discipleship in the church is walking together as we walk into the promises of Jesus. I'm going to say that again. Discipleship in the church is walking together as we walk into the promises of Jesus. We're going to unpack that a little bit in this episode. The way that we're going to unpack this definition of discipleship is by looking at the letter that Paul wrote to the Colossian church. And I love this book. It's quickly becoming one of my favorite New Testament letters. It is so packed full of good content and is so packed full of good information. And in many ways, I feel like it offers a correction to maybe the popular way that we think about discipleship, maybe the popular way that Americans think about being a Christian. And I think especially as Lutherans, we ought to cling to Colossians because it offers us a lot of really good language that we already use. We use in our in our liturgy, we use in our worship services, uh, we use it in our teaching, but oftentimes we don't know where it comes from, and a lot of the language that we use comes from Colossians. So Colossians is a letter that was written by Paul the Apostle to the church in Colossae, and he was dealing with some, there was some issue in Colossae that we don't really know what was going on, and Paul didn't know the Colossians personally. He didn't start that church. Maybe he knew a number of them personally, but he didn't know the church as a whole. So he writes this letter as an encouragement to them and to remind them what they first heard when the gospel was preached to them. And as we enter into the book of Colossians, there are two passages that provide uh, Paul's thesis statement for the whole letter. There are two passages that talk about what he wants to accomplish in this letter. And these two passages are chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, and chapter 2, verses 6 and seven. Chapter 1, verses 9 and 10 says, For this reason, since the day we heard it, that is about their faith, we have not ceased praying for you and asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him as you bear fruit in every good work and as you grow in the knowledge of God. The second passage is chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. It says this, As you therefore have received Jesus Christ the Lord, continue to walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Now, there's a lot of great things in here. Paul wants the Colossians readers from that chapter 1, verse 9 and 10 passage. He wants these, these hearers to be filled with the knowledge of God, and with all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So he wants them to know God and to grow in how they understand God and how they understand how God interacts with them and their interior life, this spiritual understanding. And he says the reason is this, the reason that he wants them to do this is so that they can walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him and bear fruit in every good work. So he wants them to grow in knowledge and wisdom and understanding in order to he, what he says is walk in a manner worthy of the Lord and to be fully pleasing to God and to bear good fruit. 
This is echoed in chapter 2, where he says, Just as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, continue to walk in him. So there's that walk in language again. Rooted and built up in him, established in the faith. So he wants these Colossian readers to be deeply rooted into Jesus Christ, deeply rooted into the gospel proclamation, and to grow into these fruitful individuals who are pleasing to God and who know how to operate in the world. And central to both of these passages is this phrase, walk in. The Greek word here is peripateo, which literally means to walk around. In the New Revised Standard Version, the version that I normally use, it says to live in instead of walk in. And that's because the sense of this phrase, the sense of this walk around, this peripateo phrase, the sense of it is to continue in a behavior. And it's used this way in other parts of Scripture and also outside of Scripture in other Greek language literature. Generally, that's what it means, but I like how it is defined if we dig a little bit deeper into it, I think that it pulls out some new, some new meaning for us. In Specifically in the Old Testament, the Old Testament was translated, it was originally written in Hebrew, and was translated into Greek in what we call the Septuagint. And in the Septuagint, the word peripateo is, is used a lot in there. And when it is used in the Septuagint, in the Old Testament, in these Old Testament stories, the dominant use of that phrase is to talk about rulers or nations going to war with other nations, taking over a land, and then filling that land with their own people. So this could be Israel, uh, God giving Israel land, um, God commanding Israel to take over land, or other nations taking over Israel, or other nations taking over other nations. But when land is given or taken from someone, and then this force, this group, comes and inhabits that land, this word, peribateo, this walking around word, is used to describe what the people do in that land. And so if we think of it as walking around a land that's been given to you, we might use the phrase to tread on to actually inhabit and spend time and dwell in a land that is won or given. So that means that these individuals have come into this land and now they are there. They are inhabiting this place. They are dwelling in and they are treading on this land. They are peripateo. They are walking peripateo around. They are walking around this Land. So in one sense, this is living into and living in this manner that is worthy of Christ. So in one sense, it can be live in. In one sense, it can be to walk in and to continue in a certain behavior or a certain way of living because of what God has done for us. So in one sense, this is to live in or to walk in or to continue in the life that God has for us and the commands of God. But I think that there's a, another verse here in Colossians that helps us unlock this walking in, this treading on, this dwelling in phrase. And that is in chapter 1, verse 13, just a little bit later as he uses peripateo, this treading on, this walking around language. Verse 13 of chapter 1, Paul says this. He, that is God, has rescued us from the power or the reign or the dominion of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. 
So Paul writes here that God has rescued us from the dominion, from the reign of darkness, and has transferred us to the kingdom of his son. For Paul, the gospel does this. The gospel takes us up. It picks us up and removes us from the power of darkness and actually plants us and puts us into the kingdom of Christ. And in this way, this treading on, this walking around, this inhabiting language maybe unlocks some of that, that God is bringing us into this new land, the land of salvation, the land of the kingdom of Christ. And now we are inhabiting and treading on and walking in and living in and walking around this new place, this kingdom of Christ that we have been given. And Paul points out in chapter two how this happens, that we are brought into Jesus' kingdom through our baptism. Paul says this in verses 11 and 12 of chapter two. Paul says, in him also you were circumcised with a spiritual circumcision by putting off the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ. When you were buried with him in baptism, you were also raised with him through faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. So in our baptism, we are killed We are dead, we put off the body of our flesh, and we are buried with Jesus Christ. And then we are brought back to life by the same power that brought Jesus back to life. That same power of God, that same Holy Spirit. This is specifically and explicitly baptismal language. And in our baptism, we are dead, and we are brought back to life, and we are brought into God's kingdom, this new domain through our baptism. And that baptismal language is important because it will come up again later. The next question then is what happens in this new reality? What happens in this kingdom? What happens to us? If Paul writes, if his goal is to increase in his readers and his hearers, knowledge of God, wisdom, that we may walk in good works, that we may have good works, that we may walk in, a, in this manner that's worthy of Christ, if we can live and inhabit this new land, what happens to us in this new land? And there are a handful of things that happens to us. And as we read through Colossians, we see four main things that are promised to us in this new kingdom, this new land that we are inhabiting. These four things are confidence, discipline, health, and purpose. I want to start with purpose first. I want to start with the last one first. Paul writes in that chapter 1, verse 9 and 10, he says, walk in a manner worthy of Christ. And in many ways, he's echoing a phrase that's very similar to this that he writes in Ephesians, the letter to the, to the church in Ephesus. Now, Ephesians and Colossians are closely related. They were probably written about the same time, and they may have some overlapping individuals who are involved in those churches or other uh, traveling preachers and maybe some of Paul's Uh, workers that are involved in both of those churches. So there's a lot of overlap in Ephesians and Colossians. And in Ephesians, Paul writes, walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you were called. So again, we see this walking in, this peripateo language, this walking around language that Paul says, inhabit the calling that you have been called. And this is very similar to Colossians chapter one, inhabit this kingdom in a manner worthy of Christ. 
inhabit Christ and dwell in him, that we have been rescued from the power of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of life. Paul continues this train of thought in chapter 2, verse 9 and 10, where he says this, For in him, that is in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So all of God was inhabiting the body of Christ. And, Paul says, you, that is his hearers, have come to fullness in him, who is the head of every ruler and authority. So Paul uses this language all throughout Colossians, but I thought this was a great example of it. His hearers, if they are baptized, they are in Christ. They inhabit and dwell in Christ. In verse 10, chapter 2, you have come to fullness in him. That we actually find this full expression, this full maturity, this full wisdom, this full understanding. We find this fullness in him. So for Paul, as he writes Colossians, the purpose of the Christian is to participate in Jesus's life, to dwell and participate in Christ, to find our fullness in him. That is the end of every living thing's existence. And we actually see that in chapter one, where Paul writes this great, um, it's almost like this poem, or maybe it was a hymn that he, that he copied down for his letter. But it says that all things were made through Christ and for Christ, that all things find themselves fully in Christ and that we find our fullness in him. So participation in Christ, participation in Jesus's life is our goal. Any career that we have, uh, our family, uh, our church life, our hobbies, all of those things come second to this purpose, finding our fullness in Christ and living and dwelling and inhabiting Christ himself. This is the purpose of the believer. And out of this purpose, we find these other three things, and we see them all throughout Colossians. Now that we've talked about purpose, that last thing that I listed, let's go back to the first thing that I listed, which is confidence. All throughout the letter to Colossians, there are a couple things that we see where Paul prays for assurance, he prays for steadfastness, and he prays for thanksgiving, and he prays for peace for these hearers. He prays for assurance, where in chapter 2, verse 2, he says, I want your hearts to be encouraged and united in love so that they may have all the riches of assured understanding and have the knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself. So Paul continually prays for assurance and prays for steadfastness all throughout this letter. When we believe in Christ, especially if we are Lutherans and if we're reading Colossians seriously, we are a Christ-centered people. That means that our salvation, that means that our value and our worth is not based on anything we do, but is based solely on what God has done for us in Christ. This is a hard truth for us because we live in a world that says, find your self-worth, find your self-value, and we are given all sorts of self-help books, and we are given all sorts of 
of, of advertisements and influencers on social media that try to push products and try to push diets and try to push all these things that, f- that they try to get us to find our worth simply and only in ourselves, in our own willpower, in the way that we look, in the way that we dress, in the way that we smell, in the way that we operate in our lives. But we know as we look in our world that things do not have worth or value in and of themselves only. So for example, our culture, our world values diamonds a lot. And there's some good reason too. There's some good reason that we value diamonds. Diamonds are beautiful. They are rare. They are difficult to get. They are difficult to produce. And so we have decided that they are worth a lot of money. But there is nothing within diamonds, within themselves, that makes them any more valuable than pebbles. Pebbles here in the Rock River in Dixon, Sterling, and Rock Falls. The only difference between diamonds and pebbles is that we are willing to dish out thousands of dollars for diamonds. If we decided as a world that diamonds weren't valuable, they wouldn't be valuable. They wouldn't be worth anything if we didn't assign them value. If we weren't willing to pay thousands of dollars for a diamond, then they wouldn't be worth thousands of dollars. It's the same thing with things like gold or cars or houses. If everyone decided to devalue houses and only to be willing to pay hundreds of dollars for houses, that's how much that they would go for. That's how much they would be sold for. Because value is assigned by the person who is trying to purchase the thing. Value is given to something by how far the person who wants that thing will, is willing to go to get that thing. Value is not inherent in anything. Value is based on an external force, an outside person willing to pay for that thing. And in this, we know that we have value, not because I have self-worth, but because God has given me worth. God has given, given me value. God has given me value. God is willing to go the distance to have me and to possess me and to have me be found in Christ. It's the same thing with you. You cannot be skinny enough. You cannot be smart enough. You cannot be beautiful enough. You cannot be rich enough to actually give you self-worth. You already are worthy because God has given up everything for you. God has been humiliated. He has been betrayed. Jesus was beaten. Jesus was spat on. Jesus was lied about. Jesus was humiliated. Jesus died and he was buried just so God could have you. You are worthy and you are valuable because God says so, because God desires you. And there is assurance in this because I no longer have to be self-assured. I can have assurance in God, in what Christ has done for me. Paul writes, I want their hearts to be encouraged and united in love so they may have all the riches of assured understanding. All throughout Colossians, we hear about Thanksgiving. Paul uses this as a, as a tagline almost. Almost any time he lists, uh, has this list of commands that he gives to the Colossian readers, he says, and be thankful 
or bound in thanksgiving. There's It happens a lot. Chapter 1, verse 12, and chapter 2, verse 7 are a couple examples. Chapter 1, verse 12 says, giving thanks to the Father who has enabled you to share the inheritance of the saints in the light. So there he says, be thankful to give thanks to the Father. Chapter 2, verse 7 says, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So God has given us this assurance. He has given us this promise. He has given us this purpose in Christ. And our response to that is thanksgiving, is praise and thanksgiving for the thing that God has done. And here we have thanksgiving that it's difficult to be sad. It's difficult to question ourselves when we are grateful and thankful for what God has done. And that is one of the chief methods of the enemy is to take away our thanksgiving. Paul also prays for peace in Colossians. In chapter 3, verse 15, he says, let the peace of Christ rule your hearts, to which indeed you were called in the one body, and be thankful. There it is again. Let the peace of Christ rule your hearts. We also read in Galatians that peace is one of the fruit of the Spirit. That peace is actually promised to us, a peace that surpasses all understanding. Verses Verse 11 of chapter 1, Paul writes this, May you be made strong with all the strength that comes from his glorious power, and may you be prepared to endure everything with patience. I'm going to read that again. May you be made strong with all the strength that comes from his glorious power. Now, you've been listening to me talk for a while now. Maybe your ears have gotten a little little tone deaf. Maybe they have, uh, maybe your ears are getting a little tired. But I want you to hear this again. Paul prays, May you be made strong with all the strength that comes from his glorious power. All of the strength that comes from his glorious power. I don't know how much strength God's glorious power has, but I'm guessing it's a lot. I'm guessing it's more than we could imagine. And here Paul is praying that his hearers would be filled with all of the strength that comes from his glorious power. This is a pretty extravagant prayer, and that's a pretty extravagant claim. It reminds me of Ephesians chapter 1, where Paul writes, In Christ we have all the blessings that are in the heavenly places. I should say all the spiritual blessings. In Christ, we have all the spiritual blessings that are in the heavenly places. And when I read that, I think every single one, every single spiritual blessing in the heavens is mine. And that's what Paul writes. And if we believe that these words are inspired by the Holy Spirit, which we do, that means that is a promise to us. That we are given all the spiritual blessings in heaven, and we are given all the strength that comes from God's glorious power. To me, these two promises constitute practically endless development and endless good that our lives can receive. Ephesians chapter 1 seems to be saying that All of the interior things that I will be experiencing in heaven, in the new heaven and the new earth, all of the interior things that are happening 
if for all eternity with God, I can have presently. And if chapter 1, verse 11 here in Colossians is a promise, I have presently all of the strength that comes from God's power. All of it, not some of it, not a little bit, not a small little portion, all, every. That is such a a hugely extravagant statement. But I think that we become deaf to it. Apparently, we have every blessing that we're going to have in heaven, all those interior blessings, all that peace, all the patience, all the strength, all the endurance, all of those things are ours presently. And they are not commanded of us or demanded of us, but they are given to us. Not because of anything that we've done, but simply because God is a gracious gift giver. We're going to explore more about confidence in two weeks. The next thing that we hear about is discipline. And here in chapter 4 in Colossians, we see some of this discipline come out. Paul writes in verse 5, Conduct yourselves wisely toward outsiders, making the most of the time. And then he continues in verse 6, chapter 4, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer everyone. I'm just going to go ahead and say it. Uh, We Christians as a whole are not good at letting our speech be gracious always. We are not good at letting our speech be gracious really much at all. Uh, Christians are really, really bad at this. And we seem to think that having the truth gives us license to be jerks. And that's simply not the case. We are commanded here to let our speech be gracious, to control our tongues, and to conduct ourselves wisely because the world is looking at us, because the world knows that we reflect Christ and that we are in Christ. And so the world's going to look to us to figure out what Jesus thinks and how Jesus acts. And so we are commanded to walk in wisdom toward outsiders, to conduct ourselves wisely toward outsiders, and to make the most of the time that we have with them to proclaim the gospel and not to get into petty arguments about politics or about culture. Here in in verse 2 of chapter 4, Paul commands to be steadfast in prayer. We are called to pray always, to pray continuously. In another one of Paul's writings, he wants us to be steadfast in prayer and communicate with God on a regular basis. In Chapter 1, verse 23, Paul writes, Continue securely established and steadfast in the faith, without shifting from the hope promised by the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven. I, Paul, became a servant of this gospel. So here Paul tells us, the reader, the hearer, to continue in faith, to be securely established in our faith, and to not give it up. This takes a lot of discipline, to resist the devil, to flee from temptation, to flee from lust, to flee from lies, and to cling on to Christ. And that's what we are called to do is to remain steadfast in those things. Continue securely established and steadfast in the faith. In chapter 3, more broadly, Paul tells us to put to death, to put off those things that are earthly, to put off things like fornication and lust, put off sexual sin, put off idleness and put off our idols and to be clothed in good things, to be clothed in compassion and thankfulness. And so I encourage you to go back and read chapter three yourself because there is a lot in there 
that we can hear. But again, we're going to be talking about discipline in a few weeks. The last thing that I want to talk about here will be the shortest, and that is health. Several times in Colossians, Paul talks about joy and thanksgiving. He talks about it all throughout, and he talks about peace a lot, letting the peace of Christ rule our hearts. Certainly, mental health, emotional health, spiritual health is vital to our life, and it is really, really important that we do these things and that we attend to these things, and Paul commands us to do so. There are four main things that I think we see in Colossians as Paul explores this idea of walking in, of living in, of inhabiting this new kingdom in Christ, to dwell in Christ. And that is that we have confidence, discipline, health, and purpose in Christ, which is given to us because of the things that Christ has done to us. In two weeks, we're going to continue to talk about discipleship. We're going to talk about confidence, and we are going to explore how we do these things, how we live in and walk in all of these good things. I want to encourage you over the next several weeks to read through Colossians, and this is what I want you to do. I want you to take your Bible and and open it up, and I want you to take four different colored highlighters. And you should make sure that they are the wax highlighters, the the Bible highlighters that don't bleed through. At the top of the first page of Colossians, I want you to write confidence, discipline, health, and purpose. And then I want you to assign a highlight color to each one of those topics. I want you to read Colossians four times over the next several weeks. And I want you to take a highlighter, and the first time you read it, anytime there's anything that deals with confidence, that deals with assurance or steadfastness, that deals with peace or anything like this, I want you to go ahead and highlight that thing, that one color, and then do the same for discipline, health, and purpose. Anytime you come across, read it one time, and anytime you come across uh, something that has to deal with purpose, go ahead and highlight it that color. And by the end, you're going to be looking at Colossians, and you're going to see these four themes popping up all throughout this great little book. So get four different colored highlighters. At the beginning, uh, at the top of the first page of Colossians, go ahead and write confidence, discipline, health, and purpose, and assign a highlighter color and read Colossians four different times, highlighting these various things and see these themes continue to pop up. And make sure that you go back and you read those few key verses. Chapter 1, verses 9 and 10 chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. And if you want to also, you can highlight chapter 1, verse 13, which is that transferring from the reign of darkness, from the dominion of darkness to the kingdom of Christ. Those are the two or three main passages that help us understand the end and the purpose of what Paul is writing in Colossians. Enjoy Colossians. Spend some time reading it. I'll see you guys in two weeks where we will talk about confidence and we will talk about how we walk in and inhabit Christ. Use these questions for personal reflection or to lead a life group conversation. What does it mean to walk in or to walk around something in Colossians? How does this define the Christian life and discipleship? Of the four broad categories, 
discussed in this podcast. Which resonates with you the most? Which do you long for the most and why? How are you going to walk in the promises of God this week? What things has God given you to do? Prayer, worship, scripture reading, joining a life group, serving a loved one, asking for forgiveness, etc. What are the things that God has given you to do to walk in or walk around his promises in the kingdom of Christ this week?